Um, that is where we will be camped this morning. I am not doing an exposition going into a series on Romans. People thought that last service, and that's not where I'm headed. Um, but I, I, uh, I think for obvious reasons, you'll know why I chose this particular text, especially after the Jonah series, which we just finished up. So if you're brand new with us, um, we just finished a whole series of messages on the book of Jonah, and, um, and today is just kind of a standalone on, on Romans. Now, I want to I prepare you ahead of time. Um, there's a new family for a service, and, and I thought, man, that was a pretty dark and foreboding message for somebody who's brand new. Um, this is not an upbeat message, and I just want to prepare your minds for that. Um, and I, I also want to just say by way of preface that, um, uh, how do I say this? Well, we just sang, the, the song that, that introduced this message was perfect because it talks about the fact that God reigns and you are God alone and so forth. And, um, and so this dark word that we're going to look at this morning is a word spoken of or spoken by God himself, the Almighty. And he of all people, people, he of all beings has the right to speak because he is truth. So to just ask you as we, as we enter into this uh, Romans 1 passage to just remember that this is, this is, the, this is the voice of Almighty God who, who created the, the ends of the earth. He is the everlasting to everlasting. Um, his word is true regardless of what anybody else says. And um, we proceed on that line here. This is a church that has, was birthed believing in the scripture as the highest authority. And we continue in that um, belief that this is the defining word on the reality of all humanity, world, universe, science, and history. So with that said, I want to read this in its um, entirety, verses 16 through 32. And at risk of making you feel a little bit like a uh, Jack in the box. Could I have you maybe stand up in honor of God's word? Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel or the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, as everybody. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, uh, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You can take your seats. If you would um, just pause and pray with me, um, I would appreciate it. Uh, Gracious, almighty Father, um, the great I am, the... um, beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the one who is reality, is the foundation of all life, is the source of all life, the source of all truth. We ask this morning that you would grant your, your church ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have said. Lord, we pray for, um, we pray for wisdom in our time, um, the wisdom of a serpent and yet a heart that's as harmless as a dove. We pray for conviction and compassion. We pray, Lord, that we would have a sense of humility um, as we live in this world, but learn what it means not to be of the world. Father, I pray in the delivery of this that there would be a spirit of sensitivity and humility, but also of, of truth. So I pray for your help, and um, I pray for us as a church. You have called us to some interesting times in which we live, times of great opportunity to be light in darkness but also times of great danger. And so we ask, Lord, that you would um, preserve your church, um, that not only would you preserve, would you sober our minds and help us to be vigilant in our times, maybe see, like, what's going on around us and not have our heads in a hole or in the sand, um, but acknowledging what's happening and also the fact that you reign in it all, over it all, through it all. And we know at the end of the story your, um, your word is proclaimed that it is done. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, um, the beginning and the end. And so we look forward in that confidence, Father, that you are the great judge and the great savior of all humanity. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So this text has been on my mind for the last, I don't know, eight or nine weeks. I'm going through this Jonah series and, and I just kept, it, it just, it kept, um, coming back to me over and over and over again and, and meditating on it. And um, certain things came together that made me want to do that, um, talk about this, this text. One, of course, is our, our cultural climate that we're in, and I don't have to say any more about that, but changes are happening. And, and this is a, a text that, that actually addresses some of the issues, um, as well as the book of Jonah uh, weighted heavily, was heavily weighted on the side of mercy, um, uh, towards people who are doing and engaged in evil. That is the people of Nineveh, as well as Jonah. But a lot of mercy in that book. And, um, and this is kind of a bit of a counterbalance, because one can easily think, well, God is so merciful that sin doesn't really matter. Justice doesn't really matter. Right and wrong don't really matter because he's so merciful. And, and that's where I want to kind of put a counterbalance on this um, in Romans chapter 1. It's one of, the, one of the most penetrating, insightful, if you want to call it a biblical anthropology, of, of fallen, broken humanity and the nature of sin that there is in all of the Bible. Actually, chapters 1, 2, and the beginning of chapter 3. We're just going to look at the latter part of chapter 1 because it's, it's, um, it, it just encapsulates it at all. Now, I want to tell you what I'm not going to do this morning, and that is my, my aim, my intent is not to shine a spotlight on any particular sin that's worse than others. 
nor do I have any whatsoever political philosophy that I'm hoping you'll buy into or that you'll be inspired to be angry and go do something. That's, that's not my point. Um, this chapter was not written to the Roman Senate. Uh, it wasn't written to Roman society. It was written to the followers of Jesus who lived in Rome who were surrounded by immorality. Immorality which was, is written about in this chapter. And they, as Christians, had to know the difference between that which honors God and that which dishonors God. They had to understand um, what is at the center of a new life in Christ. They had to understand the ugliness of corruption and what it cost. And so he wrote these dark chapters for you and he wrote for me, not our capital. He didn't write it for our society in general. He wrote it for God's people. So that's how I want to proceed. With the hope that we just sense um, with our mind and also our heart just how... um, deadly and damaging and um, awful this thing called human corruption is, this corruption that humanity has in its heart. And and the reason is because I I, I don't know that given our current context that we take sin all that seriously. Um, There's kind of a a whatever approach about it, uh, especially in culture. And unfortunately, it bleeds its way into the church too. I know because I, I have extended family who are whatever with biblical morality. And, um, and, and, and that's something that has to be uh, broken in, in God's people. That sin is serious because the cross is serious. That's how a dead earnest God was about, about sin. He punished his son instead of us, which means we can't make light of sin because it makes light of the cross. We make light of the cross, we make light of sin. So my, my hope is just that we kind of recapture um, the sinfulness of sin and also the, the call that God has given to us to a holy life. Um, a faith, grace-inspired life, but a, a holy life nonetheless. So my, my prayer is that God will do that a little bit this, this morning and kind of providing this counterbalance. Now, this, uh, this, these verses that we just read um, focus on two kind of major things as it relates to corruption. Uh, a God part and a man part. Or to be more specific, there's a, there's a strand in here that talks about the nature of God's present wrath upon human corruption. That's strand one. And another strand is the nature of human corruption itself. Those two things. There's what God does and then what evil mankind does. Th- those, those, those are the two parts. If you look through all the verbiage of what we just read, you realize God does things and man does things um, as a result of, of corruption. So we're going to break those two apart. And then I want to conclude with a positive note of hope, a simple reflection on the gospel. Okay, that's, that's where we're headed. Part one, first strand, or the first part, is the nature of human corruption as outlined here in Paul. And he's going to tell us that it's spiritual in nature, it's progressive, and it's pervasive. Those are kind of the three overarching pieces underneath point number one. Now, all of this is exploring, if you will, the the dilemma we find ourselves in. And God is going to, if you will, take the lipstick off the pig that we often put on there, um, the makeup off sin. He's just going to say, this is really what it is, okay? Um, At its heart, where it begins is with God himself. That is, it's spiritual in the sense that uh, it proceeds from a suppression of truth about God and also a replacement of him. That verse at the very beginning, verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
They hold it down. They hold down something that they know innately to be true. And that is the truth that there is a God who exists, a God who created all things, a God who is divine in power, and a God who, who is supreme over all. Why? Because of everything around us. Because of the complexity, the diversity, and the unity of all of creation working together that we see every morning. That is to say, from Paul's vantage point, and I don't mean this to be um, derogatory. Well, I suppose it is derogatory. Atheism is mankind's best attempt to deny the obvious. We wake up every morning and, and we're just surrounded by glory. Not just glory, but, 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 but um, on a macro and micro level, such glorious patterns of life and, and mixture and harmony. Now, granted, the creation has fallen, which is why it doesn't work perfectly, but the natural conclusion to a, to a mind unclouded and not suppressing truth and not drawn away by sinful desires to say, wow, someone made this. This is pretty awesome. That's why I say atheism, at least the intellectual type, is, the, is man's best attempt to deny the obvious. Um, it surrounds us all around us. Mankind willingly suppresses the truth that God exists and he created all these things. You know, I find it fascinating that pre-Darwin, you know, most Everybody on planet Earth believed in some form of divinity because they're surrounded by creation. And now a lie has inserted itself looking for some way to obviate the fact that God exists and we are answerable to him. But that's the world in, in which we live. And in that suppression, there is a replacement, an exchange that happens. That humanity has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That is, there's a dethroning of the Lord. There's no longer one, number one in our hearts. Something else is. And, and when that happens, it's, it's like taking a house off of its foundation stone. It's like, it's like cutting an oak tree off from its roots. It, 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 it will decay and it's eventually going to die. Um, mankind, when, it, when there's a suppression of truth about God and a replacement of him, is adrift. There's no moorings. There's no anchors. There's, there's no, nothing to hold on to. There's just the general opinion of public opinion guiding every at least that's where we're living right now suppression of truth that's where it begins is a displacement of the lord um and everything else follows like an avalanche comes out of that and uh, you know paul could have written this part in the 21st century you know it's it's interesting that god has been systematically just even generic god has been systematically wiped out of science and history and education and art. Any of you read uh, Unbroken, the book, before you saw the movie? So uh, Someone gave me the book. It was for someone in the congregation never read the book and, until that point, never heard the story of uh, Louis Zamperini. And so I started reading the book. An amazing story, right? If you haven't read it, read it because it's a lot better than the movie. And, uh, and, and, and in it, you know, it's, it's about him being unbroken, despite the fact that he faces great odds at the sea, and he continues to endure, and then he gets taken to a Japanese concentration camp or camps, and tortured uh, repeatedly, and still he doesn't break. So it's, it's like this amazing story of a hero, right? Well, when he finally gets freed, and he ends up back on mainland United States, um, kind of an irony happens, and that is um, we realize that Louis Zamperini is broken, because he can't deal with the bitterness and the anger that he feels towards what he went through. And so he turns to alcohol. And his, his life is just decaying, disintegrating around him. 
So in one sense, the first part of the story, he's unbroken. In the last part, you find he's very broken. And then I had never heard the story. So I was surprised to start hearing about him going to and reading the book. He went to a Billy Graham crusade. Next thing you know, he bows his knee to Christ. The suppression of truth is done at this point. He's acknowledging that not only God exists, but God has done something to rescue and save him. And God heals his heart. And now, if Louis Samparini was alive today, and you were to ask him, what's the most pivotal part of your story? I guarantee you he'd say, when Christ broke through and saved my broken heart. So I was curious. When, uh, when the movie came out, directed by Angelina Jolie, hmm, is she going to leave that part in? I didn't think so. And so and I, I watched the movie, great movie up to the park, and then it kind of ends with this hero. And uh, I just thought, Wow. They left out the best part. Same thing with the, uh, with the, the, the American Sniper. Got to read that book too. God's in there too. And if they ever make a, a, a movie out of Fearless, another great book about a Navy SEAL, um, where faith is an integral part of his heroism, um, I'm pretty sure they won't include that either. Well, should we be surprised that some of the great heroes of our time, behind them is a greater hero, but we never hear that part. No, we shouldn't be surprised. Because that's the part people want to suppress. That's the part people really don't want to hear who want to live life on their own terms, pursuing their own ends. That's what they don't want to hear because that implies accountability, it implies morality, and it implies that there are right and there are wrongs. So spiritual in nature, our, our, this, is, this, is, this is our modern context right here. It's progressive you get the sense that once a, a, a society or people detaches itself from its God orientation, in our case and in the case of the Bible, Yahweh, revealed in the person of Jesus, then things uh, avalanche downhill. And that's the sense of the text. There's perversion of worship, exchanging of the glory of God for images. And that comes back over and over and over again. The fact that the, the displacement of God is at the center of all of this. Um, the perversion of sexuality, that is, God turns them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. Um, the ever-expanding industry of modern pornography is a testament to the truth of this. But then there is a perversion of the natural order of sexuality. Now, let me pause here and say that when you stop worshiping God, you still worship something. Everybody does. There's something that people love. You have to live for something, and whatever people end up living for, that one thing, that is what they worship. Um, whether it's the sun or the moon or the stars or, or, or money or career or sex, um, is one of the top of the charts, ancient and modern, especially in our culture. There's a perversion of sexuality. Then there's the perversion of the natural order of sexuality. And here I'm going to pause, and I'm just going to make a clarification if I can. Or an emphatic clarification, not for the sake of highlighting a particular sin, but for the sake of just understanding morality. When it says in verse 27, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That statement for nearly 18 centuries that we have recorded commentary and interpretation have always been understood one primary way. It hasn't been until the last few decades where people have come along and tried to change the background and therefore change the meaning of this. 
that is understood in a straightforward manner. What this is talking about is homosexual behavior. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right? Um, like I said, there's in the, in the point right previously, there's a whole lot of heterosexual pervert behavior that, that is implied in that. So we're just not trying to throw stones at any one particular thing. Nevertheless, there is an avalanche happening here. There is a progression Progressing to the debased mind, a mind that is, um, has lost its sense, it's lost its moral bearings. That, that reduces mankind to, to basically kind of an animalistic um, uh, a society. And then there's perversion with approval. At the very end, in verse 32, you have people giving approval. That's a sense of, of celebration and applause for people who are practicing evil stuff. Again, that could have been written today. Because that's exactly where we're at. All right? From the displacement of God to the celebration of evil and people tearing each other apart um, with their narcissistic, self-centered, me, me, me kind of spirit. So it's progressive. And then last, it's pervasive. That is, it infects every part of our humanity. If you just kind of reflect back on the different areas that, that, that Paul talks about, it's spiritually degenerating. It's physically degenerating. People doing things with their bodies they shouldn't do. It's sexually degenerating. It's mentally degenerating. And it's communally degenerating. It's, everybody's coming apart. Well, that, in, in kind of a really brief overview of these verses, is kind of the, the, the nature of, of human depravity and, and sinfulness and corruption. And there's, there's no putting lipstick on this. There's no putting makeup on it. There's no, no, no saying that this is fashionable, which in our time, evil has been made fashionable. Is it serious? Uh, absolutely so, if you believe this. And yet it, um, it in, in our, and the, the big concern for me is that the pressures are growing and the pressures are great, especially on our younger generation, to be conformed to the world rather than to be transformed by the renewing of our mind um, through the scripture and to allowing it to form our worldview, to form our view of, of morality, to form our view of humanity, to form our view of what it really means to be created in the image of God, which is all lost if you cave to the pressure of culture. So it's a serious, absolutely. That gives us a sense of the nature of human corruption. And I'll just say, kind of pull out the summary point in terms of where it starts. It's the fact that man has a wayward will, a heart that wants other things, not God. And whatever solution there is has to make a change in that will center, that desire center of the human heart. Because that's how it starts. Men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth about God. That's one half of it. The other half is how God works in and through these things. In particular, the nature of his divine wrath. Now, nobody likes to talk about this stuff. That's why I said this is a dark and foreboding message. But it's here. And the time is now. To understand these things and, and not um, ignore them. When he starts off this section saying, for the wrath of God is, present tense, revealed. That is being unfolded. Um, 
He's talking about a present dimension of God's judgment on humanity. Okay? Now, let me make a distinction between active and passive judgment here. There are times in which God intervenes in human history and actively judges humanity. The flood of Noah, massive in- intervention of active uh, judgment. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, another one, active intervention in human history. The second coming of Jesus will be an active intervention on humanity when he judges the living and the dead. Um, regardless of what anybody says, everybody bows. But there's a passive type of, of God's wrath. It's right here, right now. And it consists in God releasing sinful humanity to its own desires. Three times, you'll know, this is what God does in response to this uh, progression of evil. And actually, God's um, wrath perpetuates it in some respect. For it says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies. So he, he gives them over. He releases them. Um, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And that, that, that there's 21st century modern America, 2015 summer. Um, 28, God gave them up to a debased mind um, to do what ought not to be done. He gives them up. I think reluctantly so, like a parent who would have a hard time just letting their alcoholic child after repeated attempts and attempts and attempts say, I can't help you anymore. Um, you know, the very fact that there's any, mora- any morality anywhere, any semblance of righteousness or justice in any culture or society is a matter of God's common grace. I want you to hear that part. The fact that a culture is more moral than another culture isn't necessarily because that culture is better, but rather because God in his common grace, which is, is it's a grace that he shows to believers and unbelievers alike. He causes the rain to shine on the, uh, rain to fall on the righteous and unrighteous and, and the sun to shine on the righteous. Un- this is goodness in a general way is given to all. And one of the things it does is it, it allows mankind to, to act civilly. Um, it allows mankind to dwell on earth with some semblance of justice and righteousness. And when God begins to withdraw his fingers from that, um, then we see just how evil mankind can become. What we see now isn't even a fraction of what can happen. Actually, you look back in human history, you can see some pretty grotesque um, capacities of the heart of mankind. Massive delusions, massive holocausts, and things like that. That's when God begins to withdraw his hands. And that's the view here is God in an act of judgment is saying, okay, you really want this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you to it. You made your bed. You chose your bed. And now I'm going to release you to lie in it. And you know, I suspect that at the end of the day, our whole concept of hell is very similar to that. Though there's an active part in it. That is, at the end of the day, those who are there want to be there. Um, they, they don't want to have anything to do with God. I mean, why would they want to? They, they, they didn't want God in this life. Why would they want him in the next? There'll be some, not just suppression, just complete, um, complete rejection of anything having to do with God. But that's, that's God's wrath working itself out in, in, in a society, in a culture, in corruption. It actually uh, is part of the way God brings judgment and giving people over. What a... What, what, what a sad, but uh, a sad picture. See, you know, we were created in the image of, of the invisible God. 
We were created to behold and love and relate to someone who is not just immortal, but someone who is beautiful and just and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, someone of power and wisdom, someone who is, um, is our, our rock and refuge, someone that, 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 that fulfills every human desire, deepest desires, and to willfully turn from that to created things that can't satisfy and to treasures that you can't keep. And that over and over, God then chooses to give us what we want, and that is a form of judgment. So is it serious? Yes, it's serious. And I I hope we believe that. I hope we're vigilant to that. I hope we're sobered up to know what's going on around us and not get caught in the river or conform to the pressure. That's the dark part. But here's here's the deal. Um, In these really dark words, dark chapters, Paul is just doing an introduction. An introduction to the most amazing display of God's power and grace through Christ to actually reach people who have gone this far back to himself. That's the gospel part. And he's going to argue forcefully that grace overcomes sin. Which is why I started reading in verse 16. Just the power of the gospel. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of God's decisive act in history. In which he made a way for us to be released from wrath and to have our hearts changed. A power of God to salvation to everyone, including everybody mentioned in verses 18 through 32. At whatever level of corruption you find yourself, all of those are open to God's saving power working in their life, to whoever believes and embraces, to stop suppressing and replacing God and allows him to be God in their life. And the cool thing with this is that God actually, in his work of salvation in our hearts, enters in and recreates or regenerates what's been degenerated and reorients or reorders life as it was meant to originally be. It's the reverse of 18 through 32. That is, Christ came to remove us from the wrath, that was strand number two, and to give us a new heart, to turn that dark will back so that God... um, is no longer replaced. He is now front and center in the most important thing in the human heart. Um, It doesn't happen overnight, this transition or this recreation or regeneration, um, this forming of of who who we are and who we're becoming. doesn't come without struggle, but the fact of the matter is God's gospel has the power to reorder the human heart back to the way it should be no longer suppressing, but confessing that Jesus is Lord. And just to clarify or to um, put this in a text of chapter 6, verse 17, when he's talking about this new life and how it shows itself in our hearts, he says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You came in, and reordered things. And there's a, there's a lot of testimonies in this room, I'm sure, who, of people who've experienced that heart change. That you were pursuing one thing, the God replacement. And God came into your life and things were reordered. Like I said, I, I know that there's stories like that in here. Do we believe 
Do we still believe that to be the case, that the gospel has the power in this dark hour to do its powerful stuff of turning a heart of, who's just, I, I know I've seen it, someone who is um, massively promiscuous, a form of heterosexual perversion, who comes to Christ and Christ reorders his heart so that sex is not at the center anymore. Christ is. And to realize that need, that need to bow down to that altar isn't there anymore. Now there's a greater love for Christ than there is for the sexual experience and, and embraces a sense of um, chastity or abstinence whether if he's single. I've, I've seen it. You have too. Or to believe that God in his gospel has the power to reorient one's orientation. That's what I just said there is massively controversial outside the walls and probably there's some sensitivity inside these walls that the power of the gospel reorders the heart and the will so that one's sexual identity is not at the center anymore it doesn't have to be christ is he reorders and then begins to work the transformation all all the way out into one's life that's the power of the gospel and 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 it's 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 the only thing the only thing that can actually bring true, lasting change to people's lives. It's not going to happen in Washington, D.C. It's not going to happen as a result of waving banners and doing marches on streets. It's going to be God's people believing in the power of the gospel, living the power of the gospel, and then speaking the power of the gospel. That is, that is, is it. At the end of the day, that's what transforms people from the inside out. You can't transform from the outside in. You transform them from the inside out. The power of the gospel. The question is, do we, do we really, really believe that? Do we really believe that? Because we can, we can, you know, say we believe it. But if we believe it, then, then, then it's going to begin or it's going to continue to transform our lives. And there's going to be a passion to live it and a passion to say it. Because, you know, it's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that works. You don't always see that. And I think part of the problem is that we have a lack of faith in the power of the gospel. I was um, rather surprised by something that Pope Benedict XVI said. Hey, you're probably surprised I read the Pope stuff. I do sometimes. Sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it's not so good. But this particular time, he hit it right on the head in terms of what he perceives to be um, a disease within the church. He wrote this, he says, a particularly dangerous phenomenon for faith has arisen in our times. Indeed, a form of atheism exists, which we define precisely as practical, in which the truths of the faith or religious rites are not denied, but are merely deemed irrelevant to daily life, detached from life, pointless. So it is that people often believe in God in a superficial manner and live as though God does not exist. I, that's right on. And Paul would call that a form of godliness that denies the power of it. And, um, and we can very easily in here profess with our lips that God is important, but in fact live our lives as if God does not exist and the power of his gospel and his word does not exist in the way it says it does. So my prayer for us and hope for us 
an ongoing prayer and hope for us is that God increases our sense of faith in the power of his word, the power of the gospel, what Jesus has done in removing us from wrath and giving us life and reordering ordering, um, a God-centered life, um, that we would believe that, like, and we increased our belief in that and to live it and to speak it. That is our job here on planet Earth, to believe the gospel, live the gospel, and when given opportunity to humbly yet compassionately speak the gospel and watch it change people from the inside out. Amen. Father, I pray for your church. I pray for her in these exciting but difficult times that you would quicken us and that you would sober us, that we would have our hearts um, filled with faith and belief in the power of Christ to change minds and hearts and wills that you would empower us to live that out. The proof, Lord, is in the pudding, and that is to see transformed lives of those who believe, actually believe that the gospel has that kind of power. Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for those who are lost um, as we once were. We pray for those who are blind as we once were. And we pray that your grace would abound. May your people have a humble spirit, a compassionate spirit, but may we be uncompromisingly loyal to the word of Jesus. We pray this in his name, his mighty, mighty name. Amen.